turn now to Lord's Day 42. We come to the Eighth Commandment in the Catechism, and that will be where we focus today the Lord's, our Lord's teaching on the Eighth Commandment. So question 110. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, but also such wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures, deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money, and usury. We must not defraud our neighbor in any way, whether by force or by show of right. In addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse or squandering of his gifts. What does God require of you in this commandment? Answer, I must promote my neighbor's good wherever I can and may, deal with him as I would like others to deal with me, and work faithfully so that I may be able to give to those in need. Beloved in the Lord, owning great wealth can be both good, a good thing, and a bad thing in the scriptures. It depends on how you use it. It's a wonderful blessing. The wealth itself is good, a wonderful blessing to an individual. Yet at the same time, that good thing can so quickly become a stumbling block. Abraham and David, as well as many unnamed wealthy individuals in the New Testament, use the wealth that they gained for the sake of God's people in general. But wealth also breeds forgetfulness, forgetfulness of God. We forget where the wealth actually comes from. And we say to ourselves that somehow we earned this wealth. That it is not a gift from God, but something that we made ourselves. Right? You can think of that phrase, the self-made man. The problem, we forget that wealth is a gift. Even if we worked for it, it's a gift of God. All we have is a gift of God. This is true of physical goods and spiritual goods, the old creation and the new creation. As Christians, we are a new creation, dead to the old creation, yet we still interact with it on a daily basis, for God has placed us here to witness to his mighty works. That means our primary investment should be in the things of the new creation. We must remember that our investment in the old creation is temporary. It's subject to moth, rust, and robbery. Too often we forget to invest in the most important treasure, the treasure of heaven. I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, lay up your treasure in heaven. And another way to say this is use whatever wealth you have for the sake of the kingdom of God. Use everything 
you have for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, all this is not to say that God does not care about our earthly possessions. The very command, do not steal, demonstrates that God desires to protect. He wants to protect the individual's possessions, the household's possessions. At the same time, the command is a warning against overvaluing wealth to the extent that we are willing to take wealth from one another. Just as the command against murder is a warning that I do not value my life to such a great extent that I am willing to take another's. Right? When I murder, I'm saying my life matters more than this other person's life. And I'm saying the same thing when I steal. Rather, in the case of murder, I am willing to release wicked anger and desire for revenge and trust in God for his goodness. In the same way, I'm called to value wealth in its proper context as a gift from God. A gift of God to me. And my neighbor has also received this as a gift of God. And therefore, it must be protected. And when I understand this, I hope that I am not even tempted to pursue wealth at the expense of my neighbor. So what are possessions and why are they so important? As we've already said... Possessions are a gift of God to myself or to a household. God gives my strength, my breath, my place in this world, so that even though I work the land, I buy and sell, or I receive an inheritance from my family, even though I make a living through my work, all these things ultimately come from God's gracious hand. They're ultimately gifts of God. At the same time, just because they are a gift from God does not mean that they do not, in a real sense, belong to me. God has given them to me in trust so that I may use these things for his glory. Christians don't need to have a problem with the idea of private property. Because when God gives his gifts to us, they do truly belong to us. That means my neighbor, my neighbor is never free to simply take my possessions from me. And in the same way, I may not reach out and take my neighbor's wealth unless it is freely given to me. You see, the eighth commandment, do not steal, is closely related to the sixth, do not murder. I have been given life. I am called to use that well. And possessions or wealth are an extension of that life. Uh, wealth is sometimes compared to a fortress in the Proverbs. It's a protection of my life. They might come through my parents. I, as the image of my parents, continue to extend the life of my parents through that wealth. Wealth might come through my own productivity. In that case, I am mixing 
myself, my life with the things that are around me. So an attack on my wealth is, a, is a, in a sense, an attack upon me. It's an attack upon my well-being. This is why people will destroy themselves through drugs, drink, and even suicide when they lose everything. And that, to be clear, is not the right response to losing wealth. But without God, it's a very understandable response. If you don't have God and you lose everything... That means everything, every protection, everything that makes worth life worth living in this world is lost. And I'm speaking quite broadly here. This is more like a, a Job case where he loses family, wealth, possessions, everything. I am nothing, destitute. Of course, as a Christian, my life is safe in God. So even here, God can make me willing and able to surpass the feelings of despair that come with being destitute. That is because in God, in Christ, my being is so much more than just what I own here on earth. Right? We have to think of these commandments. When we're thinking of these commandments, we always got to think, how does this work out of the fact that I belong to Jesus Christ? And when we understand this, we understand why the catechism doesn't dwell long on the actual actions of theft and robbery, but goes straight to the wicked schemes and devices we use to defraud one another. False weights and measures, deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money, and usury. Let's quickly look at each of these. False weights and measures. Thankfully, in general, we can go to the grocery store today and we don't need to worry about whether the weights listed on the products or on the scale that is used in the checkout counter. We don't need to worry that those are off. We even have the freedom to return something if the store makes a mistake. So we have, a very, we have a very, what is called a high-trust society. Deceptive merchandising. This one is much more common today. Advertisers glamorize and lie about their products. We need to be very careful about following the world as we, as we trade with one another. Do we lie about or glamorize the products we're selling to one another? We need honesty about what we're selling. Now, this doesn't mean we, need, we shouldn't sell things. If we really believe that a product will improve another person's life, then selling it can come out of a place of honesty. You can see this, this attitude, this attitude of taking advantage of one another, that comes out, in an early, comes out early in the human heart. Boys and girls... Do you demonstrate love for one another as you begin to own things? Do you share or do you seek to get as much as possible out of friends and siblings? That greedy heart, it starts early. 
counterfeit money. This one's not hard to understand. We should not use fake money and so cheat our neighbors out of their possessions. And finally, a fourth one that we don't often think about much today, usury. Usury is lending out your money with exorbitant interest rates. It is lending money so that you can milk everything you possibly can out of the person who owes you money. Now, because of how we've set up our society today, it doesn't often exist in this form, but there are companies, they often prey on poor neighborhoods that lend out money and have no interest in helping those they lend to, to pay them back. Instead, what we tend to have in our society today is almost the opposite problem. Our society as, as a whole goes into debt and, so to speak, pays it forward. Personal, corporate, and public debt grows exponentially, and so we choose to bankrupt future generations. That's what we see as a whole in our society today. And that, too, is stealing. Having listed these deceptive schemes, the catechism summarizes it all we must not defraud our neighbor in any way, whether by force or show of right. These list of things here, counterfeit money, usury, they fall under those two things. Force, you know, usury can be pulling money out of somebody by force or show of right. Can, you're, sending the, you're giving the, the fake money to somebody. So you're pretending that you actually are using legitimate currency. And that includes anything. Whether it's laziness on the job, whether using your employees unfairly, or whether it's cheating on your taxes. As God says, give honor to whom honor is due. God's jealousy over the gifts he gives us applies to every person in society, poor and rich, weak and powerful. We're often tempted to exempt ourselves for whatever the reason might be. We've seen this last week. The rioters and the looters in our country and, and the states want to exempt themselves because of systemic injustice. I deserve it more than you do. I deserve it because I have been treated unjustly. That's the reasoning of the Marxist and the socialist. On the other hand, the authorities are not without fault either. They want to exempt themselves on the basis of the burdens given to them in ruling over people. That second half of the line of the catechism, whether by force or show of right. That's an especially important line to those who have authority. And I think we can in particular focus on church and civil government here. One thing that undermines the church's authority are its extravagances. Televangelists own huge houses and jets. Popes and cardinals live in extravagant wealth. 
the leadership of the church must be so careful how they use the money that God has entrusted to them. The people of God give to the church and God wants the leadership to use that for the sake of the kingdom. If they do so, people will be much more willing to give of themselves for the sake of the church's mission. Proverbs 29, verse 4. By justice a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. Exacts gifts, that means pulling out gifts from people. And of course, this equally applies to the civil government. The way that governments use the tax money that is given to them is one of the biggest causes of a breakdown of trust between civilian and government official. In the case of the civil government, too, no one is free to withhold taxes when the government calls upon them to pay, pay up. This means the civil government ought to be all the more sober-minded in what they ask the public to pay. You can think of Proverbs 28, 16. A ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor, but he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. Again, the, the Proverbs are, are full of warnings to act well, to use well the authority that has been given to us. And really, this applies to all those who are in a position of authority to call upon others to give gifts. There are many charities that have misused and wasted the gifts that have given to them. Behind this all is Paul's warning. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money justifies all sorts of oppression. And the love of money justifies all sorts of rebellion. Finally, we are warned, God forbids all greed. In a sense, we've already dealt with this. Greedy men find their way into authoritative positions and use that to oppress people. Those who are greedy among the poor try to find a shortcut to riches through robbery and stealing. Greed is deeply embedded into our human nature. We will quickly sell our souls for the sake of having it all in this world. God forbids all greed. The heart of where all that stealing comes from. And all abuse or squandering of his gifts. To understand why God forbids the abuse and squandering of his gifts, we need to understand a little about what it means that God is our Father in Scripture. And also to understand a little about fathers and sons in the Scriptures as well. A father seeks to prepare his son to give to his son what he needs to live well. The father desires that the son uses the gifts he has passed down to him. We want him to use them well, to improve himself 
with those gifts and to improve the world around him. Why? We need to understand what fathers and sons are in the Bible. The son is the image, just like Adam's the image of God. The son is the image of the father, we might say, an extension of the father into the world, a representative of his household, and eventually a replicator, a repeater. He he starts a new household that reflects his father's household. And this is, of course, imaged in the father and the son. The son who comes to do the will of his father and to establish the new creation, the new household of the father. Now, human fathers and sons, it's a little bit different, not least in that any given son has a distinct will from the will of his father. And the relationship is further complicated by the sins of the fathers and the sins of the sons. But we still see something of the divine order that God intended in the work of the incarnate Christ. So the father, fathers and sons reflect the father and the son in how they work in the world. We ought to use the gifts our fathers give to us in a way that honors our earthly fathers, but even more our heavenly father. In a lot of ways, Canada, it follows that first half of the first question about the Eighth Commandment. We really work hard to make sure that you can't steal from one another and that advertisers are fair. But what Canada breaks as a whole is this part of the Eighth Commandment. She wastes the gifts of her human father, fathers, and even more, she wastes the gifts of her heavenly father. This is the story of the prodigal son. He demands his inheritance and goes off and spends it all. That's a sin against his father, against the gift that his father has given him. We sin against our fathers when we waste our lives on pleasure. We have wasted the good advice that our fathers have given us. Assuming that we grew up in a Christian home, we have wasted the privilege of the good beginning that our fathers have given us. How much more do we sin against God the Father, who promises to give us everything we need when we forget him and waste the gifts that he gives us, misusing ourselves and our wealth in pursuit of pleasure, pride, and violence. But we have a deeply hospitable and generous God. To, to go back to the, the parable of the prodigal son, that father who receives his prodigal son again, that's a picture of our God. He sees us in our greed and our wastefulness, and, but he is merciful. He has given us his gifts once. Adam received all the gifts of the garden of God in the garden, and he wasted them. 
He threw them away. He despised his birthright. And we participate in that waste. But God in his love and his mercy pours out his gifts of grace upon us through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. He is the good father who will receive the son who wastes his gifts into his household once again. God wants us to reflect his hospitable nature. He wants us to reflect his law of love. That's why this commandment, it's not merely negative. It's not merely do not. It's not merely about refraining from harming my neighbor's property. Rather, it calls us to reflect God's overwhelming generosity. I do not steal because I care about the good of my neighbor. I love my neighbor. God gives us gifts so that we can reflect him as sons of God. As sons of God, we, like the Son of God, are extensions of God's person into his, this world. God cares that no one steals from my neighbor. I care that no one steals from my neighbor. God gives generously. I give generously. Says the catechism, I must promote my neighbor's good wherever I can or may, deal with him as I would like others to deal with me, and work faithfully so that I may be able to give to those in need. My possessions are good and a gift from God. My neighbor's possessions are good and a gift from God. I want to succeed. I want him to succeed. I seek my neighbor's good. Through my care for my neighbor, I am investing in what truly matters. And now I'm going to bring the, in those, those two readings I, I read for, um, for this service. The feeding of the 5,000 demonstrates what the effects of, the hospi of hospitality are on the Christian. The food that Jesus hands out to the hungry crowd grows exponentially. We see something true of both the physical world and the spiritual world. God has built the principle of growth in this world. People grow. People produce other people. Trees grow. Trees produce other trees. And wealth grows. Wealth produces more wealth. There's no limited supply of wealth. It is constantly growing. On a merely physical level, we can see this. I own an apple tree. I plant some of the apples that grow on that apple tree. And I sell some of them. Now I have 10 apple trees and $40. Ecclesiastes puts it this way. Cast your bread upon the waters and it will return to you after many days. This could be an image of putting your wealth, your bread, to work and producing more. It could be an image based on the production of beer. Beer is grain, yeast, hops, and water. You need to put that together and wait, producing a better product than you had originally. Both are emphasizing the productivity of the earth. 
But this is also true at a spiritual level. We begin to understand that by understanding how I can use my physical goods to store up treasures in heaven. My earthly goods are only good for this life. Saving up my earthly goods may well end in disaster. Everything physical that I own is subject to decay. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't be careful with our earthly goods. Rather, it means that we do not put our trust in earthly goods. We don't need, we don't need to be like those, those persons who lose everything and are tempted to lose their lives as well, to take their own lives as well. Our earthly good, our earthly honor, our earthly authority do not translate into heavenly goods. You know the old saying, you don't see a U-Haul behind a hearse. If I truly use my wealth for the sake of my neighbor, not for the sake of looking good, I am saving up treasure, good works in heaven. My Father who is in heaven, he will reward me. In, in this way, casting my bread upon the water also pictures my good works, the types of works that come from the heart and for which my Father in heaven freely rewards me. Now, some will say that the reward comes in this life, and sometimes that does happen. God blesses the way we give. But the promise here is that God will reward us in heaven for the good works that we do in this life. If we give to one another and we look for a reward in this life, that may be all that we will receive. I work faithfully then. I mix my labor, myself, my life into the gifts that God has given me so that I am able to give particularly to those in need. That's what the catechism says. Is that why you work? So that you can store up treasures in heaven through the, the good works you are enabled to do through your wealth? It's helpful to understand here that this is not merely short-term, this is long-term. I save up earthly treasure so that I might better serve God's church. I prepare the next generation to do the, the same thing. And the story of the feeding of the 5,000 demonstrates that God will continue to supply what we need as we serve in his kingdom. We have seen that physical wealth multiplies. We see that when we use that physical wealth for the sake of others, we store up savings in heaven. And in the feeding of the 5,000, we see that God's grace multiplies. The disciples have gone out into the world bringing the gospel of Jesus to Judea and Samaria. And they come back and they still don't seem to understand how God's grace works. But they need to understand that God's grace does multiply. They're afraid that they don't have enough food. They want to send the 5,000 away to find food. 
Jesus says, no, I have food for them. And the lesson here is not physical. We don't need to, we don't need to expect to repeat the miracle that we find here in Luke. The lesson is spiritual. The setting, the very words that are used here remind us of the Lord's Supper. Jesus broke bread and blessed it. Jesus is saying, I have enough grace to cover and to renew thousands upon thousands of those who love me. This is God's grace pictured as food for the nations. I participate in his work as I sacrifice myself for for others for the sake of Jesus Christ. As I show and tell the gospel of Jesus Christ, grace begins to work in the next heart and in the next and in the next. So that all willingly give of themselves and their gifts for the sake of the kingdom. The lesson is spiritual. As we set set out on presenting Christ to the world, we can worry. We don't have enough resources. We didn't plan properly. We don't even have things straightened out in our local church yet. God says... I will provide. My grace is sufficient for you. And the disciples have to learn that radical trust in Jesus. We need that same trust as God brings us into new situations. In Luke 9, the disciples do find a small amount of food for the crowd. Jesus blesses it and they distribute it. And grace comes back to them as 12 baskets of broken pieces of bread. As Isaiah says, the word will go out and will return full and overflowing. In contrast, the Pharisees hoarded grace through the burdens they put on people by refusing fellowship with Gentiles and sinners. And that creates a question for us. Are we miserly with the grace of God? Jesus is telling his disciples, that's not how grace works. Grace is continual and freely given. It cannot be hoarded. We can often be tempted to have those same attitudes, those same attitudes as the Pharisees, until we understand the magnitude of the grace that God has given given to us. When we understand that, we want to share it because... I want to promote my neighbor's good. I want to give to those who are in need. That is the greatest good that my neighbor can receive. Understand, just like our, just like our physical possessions, the grace of God, our spiritual gifts, that's a gift. That's a birthright. God warns us not to abuse or neglect that great gift as well. God wants you to use that gift and all your gifts to invest in what really matters, the kingdom of heaven. We have died to the ways of the old world in the cross of Christ. Let us put on the generous hospitality that our God has shown in Jesus Christ so that our Lord may say, Well done, good and faithful servant.
All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's sing together in response from Psalm 126.